0: My name is Nate Mickle. You're listening to Mickle's and Dime's Layer 2, where every interview is dedicated to the simple, the practical, and the underappreciated. John Busenbark is a professor of management at the University of Notre Dame-Mendoza College of Business, He earned a PhD from Arizona State University and an MBA from Indiana University. John researches corporate governance and research methods, including endogeneity, non-spherical disturbances, model specification, and construct operationalization, areas that we do not touch on in this episode. I hope you enjoy learning from John Busenbark, because I always do. John, it's so great to catch up with you again. Uh, We overlapped at Notre Dame a little bit, but unfortunately, due in part to COVID, we interacted much less than I would have liked to, but at least I get to talk to you again today. Thanks so
1: much, Nate. My uh, my favorite memory of you is is when it comes to lunch. I, I remember you were a, a frequent when we would have visitors on campus, and when I visited. It was, uh, Nate was the lunch staple. So I always look forward if I got a, if I was able to get on the, on the sign up quick enough where we could spend some time at lunch together.
0: You know, I found like my favorite burger at legend's. It was the whiskey barbecue bacon burger. And I think even my wife got into that burger. So yeah, I, I, I try not to be too selfish. I try, I try to like always give people a little bit of time to sign up for lunch, but uh, I, I did love going to lunch. Uh, well, we're not eating lunch today. Uh, we're in our sterile, uh, you know, offices. Uh, But regardless, I'm happy to talk to you. And John, you've had a great career. Uh, I look at you and uh, you look very young. But when I talk to you, you always seem very wise. And as you think back on your research, are there two to three simple, practical, underappreciated lessons you've learned you'd most like to pass along to others?
1: Sure. Yeah. Thanks, Nate, and thank you for the for the kind words. It's a nice redefinition of the word "great." So that's that's always nice, and we can uh, uh, help Merriam-Webster. So, so I, I think the first big lesson that I've learned in most of my more recent research, but especially earlier in my career as well, is that um, how we internalize external expectations of ourselves, or what we think other people are expecting of us, drives our behavior in ways that uh, causes biases. And I think this is really cool because there's, there's all sorts of research and we talk about individual biases all the time, but oftentimes it's kind of seen as like this internal struggle that we do, like sunk costs or escalation of commitment where, where we just have to kind of get over our own heads in order to think rationally. But But I'm not sure that's the case. I think it's when we expect or when we think somebody expects something of us, we react in a way to try to mirror those expectations, and oftentimes that's a way that's both disingenuous to ourselves, doesn't do ourselves any favors, and and is it rational or, or or goes off course from from probably what would have been the best outcome
0: anyway. So, do you have any examples that come to mind? I mean, I, I hear this sounds like a really cool bias that I've not thought much about, uh, but any like specific examples that you could share that would illustrate this?
1: Yeah, of course. I'll give you one from, from uh, a, a study that I just recently submitted, and then one also uh, from my own personal experience. So um, in, in a recent study, we looked at how managers respond to hedge fund activism. So so hedge funds will uh, sometimes target companies and say, we don't like what you're doing, and they'll issue a campaign and and uh, try to coerce managers and, and directors into doing what they want. A good example of this recently, Carl Icahn, uh, didn't like the way McDonald's was treating its pigs in its supply chain, so launched this whole campaign about improving pig treatment. So that's kind of on the more uh, obtuse end, but usually it's more performance or operational related. And most people w- would think, and what ex- or what hedge funds expect to happen, are managers just to say, okay, good idea or bad idea, and we'll push back. But what we found is that managers expect, or they think that other people expect them to uh, to demonstrate responsiveness in other ways. So we found that that when there's a hedge fund campaign, these managers go way off and do totally unrelated, unnecessary activities that undermine kind of the inertia of their organizations because they believe, as we theorize they believe, that outsiders will view them as impotent or not responding enough so they they almost overreact because of an expectation that there's no evidence exists uh there's no evidence that that stakeholders or investors or anybody but the hedge fund expected them to do anything um there's really have you heard about this with soccer goalies before Uh, in
0: terms of like whether you dive left or right or stay in the middle
1: Yes. Have you heard about that? This, the reason why they theorize that's the case?
0: Is it because, so if I'm remembering right, you just never want to stay in the middle. No, you never want to shoot in the middle because you don't want to look like an idiot. If you <laughs> miss in the middle, is that the, is that what I'm thinking of?
1: This is good. It's very Dwight Shrew. I, I don't, don't, I think to myself, would an idiot do that thing? And if so, I cannot not do that thing. Uh, which probably another good lesson, but um, yeah, that's kind of it. So, so these, these bar Eli uh, at all, kind of out of the Chicago university of Chicago behavioral camp, they, what they found is that it's most effective for a soccer goalie to basically just stand there. If a goalie doesn't move on a penalty kick, and I don't know anything about soccer. So if I get the nomenclature wrong, feel free to stop me. uh, The, the, the probability of stopping the ball is highest, but they, It's still a low probability because the net's so big. So goalies think that if they don't dive one way or another, which actually reduces the likelihood of blocking the kick, that others will think that they're they're idiots, that they didn't do anything. Well, How could you not have responded to that? So it's an expectation that may not even exist. right? The expectation for the coaches to block the ball. I don't care how you block it. Uh, and, And it's truly from the fans as well. But but they think this expectation exists, so they react uh, irrationally, even in even in the face of of data that's now been published for fifteen years or so.
0: Yeah, very interesting illustration. So one of the reasons I got into psychology, well, organizational psychology, is because I loved learning about these biases and the ways that our brains uh, don't always function rationally or properly. And this is a new one, John, that I am really excited to learn about. And did you mention you have a personal experience with this as well?
1: Sure, yeah. So, so I think this is probably common in, in most professions, but certainly in academia, we have it. We have an objective metric by which we can all be judged, and that's number of publications or number of citations or publications in certain journals or whatever it is, right? Or even if it's teaching, we have an objective eval at the end. And uh, we, at least I and, and many others with whom I spoke, have this. Um, perception that others expect us to have a certain number relative to other people. So we spend a lot of time comparing ourselves, well, that person's in my cohort and they have this many publications, but I only have this many and and therefore I have to do this. And for myself, what I found that drove earlier in my career is jumping on a bunch of projects that I absolutely hated. I spent so much of my time doing the job because I thought it would increase my output more than because it was interesting and contributed to knowledge because I had this thought where, well, people expect me to publish more papers than that person. And right now I don't have it. So I'm going to do whatever it takes to make that happen. Uh, And then it it turns out that I don't think anybody had that expectation. You know, you get get your reviews from the department or your senior colleagues or whatever. And everyone's like, you're doing great. You have too many papers. What are you doing? Uh, And so it was a big realization. And I started to think about that in the context of my research. And I'm like, whoa, I am doing exactly what, what I research and suggest managers shouldn't do.
0: So as you're thinking about combating this bias, uh, what advice, I, I mean, I don't know, maybe this is beyond the scope of what you've done so far, um, but it, if you're just, you know, giving advice to people, how would you advise them to think about this bias and, and try to combat it?
1: Sure. Three things. First, uh, don't impute uh, expectations from others. Listen listen to what, what has actually been said in many careers uh, or in many positions in your life, even if you're a student in school or something. There are pretty clear guidelines. This is what I expect of you. And of course, it's always good to to try to exceed those in in some ways, uh, but not to go so far astray from the task, right? Just follow the expectations that exist, stay focused on the task at hand. Uh, Certainly, I think to remember that uh, uh, in some ways, and this is is so universal, but if we focus on doing what we really like uh, rather than what we think others want us to do, uh, I think it'll kind of keep us on track.
0: Okay. So that just reminds me of uh, this idea of, of mind reading. And I love this, you know, don't impute, uh, just listen. And I think it was John Gottman, the um, marriage and family uh, researcher who's very well known. And, and, and this is one of the problems that couples get into, right, when they start trying to mind read. And so we're just, yeah, better off listening than trying to mind read.
1: It's such a great point. I feel like I have uh, fights in my head with my wife almost every day. Like I'm (laughs) doing the dishes and I'm like, in my head, I imagine myself saying like, why am I doing these dishes? I didn't make any of these. And then she's gonna respond this way and I'm gonna, and then she's over there just watching TV, like not even thinking at all about about (laughs) this whole scenario I've cooked up and I'm sure the same is fine. And then at the end, I'm like, why did I do that? This was so, so irrelevant.
0: Uh, Well, I can certainly relate and my poor wife um, can appreciate uh, well, hopefully, it'll be good to hear that I'm not the only one that does that. that. Um, well, such a, a great lesson, John. Um, I want to be sensitive to your time. Before we wrap up, any other lessons you'd like to leave us with?
1: Sure, I'll give you I'll give you a quick one that I think is good uh, for society, but for us to be more introspective. Uh, I just very recently published a paper where we looked at um, the difference between in group and out group bias, basically. Right? There's uh, historically people have kind of thought that. We have a preference for others who are like ourselves and a distaste for other people who aren't like ourselves. And that those are pretty much equal, right? Like they're kind of the same thing. And what we found is that, at least in the case of politics, but it probably it extends to other uh domains in life as well, is that that's not the case. People tend to, we even call it a hatred. People tend to hate others who are not like themselves more so than they than they look to attract people who are similar. And if, if you think about this with um with politics, people repel. Uh, they're, they're less inclined to say, oh, I want to hang out with somebody with my same view, than they are to say, I don't want to hang out with somebody who doesn't share my view, right? And, I, you know, there are all sorts of reasons for this, social media and regular media and kind of the supply of hate-creating stories and just the divisive nature of politics in general. Uh, but it's something that I try to think about all the time. I think about it even in mundane tasks, like when I'm driving. And you know, ninety percent of the people out there are driving just fine. And I don't think, oh, these are my people. We're all driving fine. I focus on those few who are moving too slow or whatever. And I'm like, I hate this person. They're saying, I'm like, what am I focusing on? The one, the one thing I should focus on all the good rather than that one, than that one negative.
0: Yeah, you know, it's like everybody that's driving slower than you is an idiot, and everybody that's driving faster is a maniac, right? As the yeah. saying goes. And uh, yeah, yeah, it is so easy to just focus on the negative. So, in your research, do you have any advice for how to? Uh, try to combat this one. I mean, is it as simple as just like trying to be nice, or what? Uh, what have you found, or what are you thinking about?
1: Sure, yeah, trying to be nice is often easier than said than done. Exposure. So we actually do theorize about this and, and find some cool effects that familiarity or exposure to alternative people or alternative ideas, um, or just others who behave different, really attenuates that that distaste or that hatred effect. Um, even in politics, like we, we tend to ascribe negative attributes to people who don't agree with us. Um, but the more we surround ourselves with those people, we're like they're really not that different. And then, and then, so when you're confronted with others who share that view, uh, you're more likely to accept them, is what we find. And that's consistent with the broader literature as well.
0: So, yeah, I was just talking to uh, Nick Epley and uh, Juliana Schroeder both mm-hmm. on the podcast, and, and they were talking about how, you know, it's so easy. Uh, to basically dehumanize people through text, through social media. And when you hear somebody's voice or you're in their presence, uh, it it does attenuate this fact, right? It's like, oh, yeah, we're actually uh, all people. They're not the boogeyman. We have much more in common than we can believe we do when we're just kind of interacting through uh, social media and, and, and the Internet. Well, John, I could listen to you forever. It's like you're a professional teacher or something. Um, (laughs) I I wish I could take your class. Uh, Maybe someday you'll have an online class that I can take. Um, But I just really appreciated the chance to talk with you today and learn these lessons. And you, again, like sharing these biases. Biases is one of the reasons I got into social psychology. Um, And I just love that I've been able to learn a few more from you today. So thanks so much, John.
1: Thank you, Ned. I really appreciate it.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Mickels and Dimes. John Bosenbark is an excellent teacher, and I loved learning from him today. First, when we try to mind-read others' expectations for us, we are prone to overreact in ways that don't help us. For example, goalies who are trying to block a penalty kick would be best served to basically just stand there, guarding the middle of the net, rather than diving in a random direction. But the expectations that they impute from others can cause them to choose the lower probability defense. So, rather than imputing expectations from others, we should simply listen to what is said and stay focused on those expectations. Second, our disfavor towards outgroup members tends to be much stronger than our preference for in-group members. In other words, we don't just disfavor people who are not like us, we tend to hate them, specifically when it comes to politics. But fortunately, there's a simple solution to this, familiarity and exposure. By getting to know people who have different views than our own, we realize that they're not all that different from us, and we become more likely to accept them as they are. In summary, by listening to others and getting to know them, we can sidestep these biases that John described today. It's a simple idea. Please take it seriously. Nate Mickle here with three quick requests. First, if you would like a quick summary of these lessons delivered to your inbox, visit natemickle.com and sign up for Nate's notes. Second, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others. And finally, if you'd give this podcast a 5-star review on Apple iTunes, I would really appreciate it. Thank you for all of your support.